Welcome to God is Open. Today on God is Open, we are going to be talking about the debate between John Sanders and James White, posted just yesterday on May 21st, 2016. So the debate was posted on a webpage called Unbelievable. It's a podcast, and apparently they do Christian debates, discussions about various issues. And this particular issue was phrased as, Is Open Theism Heretical? Now, James White, I don't think he actually made a case. I don't think he made a case that open theism is heretical throughout his entire debate. So I'm not sure what he was trying to do or just try to counter open theism in general. But he didn't explain why it was heretical and why open theists shouldn't be considered Christians. He just didn't. So that part of the debate, he kind of failed. But let's examine his arguments and and John Sanders' arguments for open theism and see what we can make of these things. The first about 17 minutes of this discussion or debate, it's more of like a discussion. It didn't seem very hostile, and so I'd phrase it as a discussion. But about the first 17 minutes, there wasn't actual information or a hostile exchange. They're just defining the issues. What is open theism? And my one criticism here is open theism in this discussion is framed as God not having omniscience or free will being absolute or something like that. But they don't touch on what I think is the key area. And this is what I think that the open theists should refocus the debate to. Are these platonic attributes that were introduced into the church? Open theism then would be a rejection of non-biblical pagan concepts that were incorporated into the church. These platonic concepts about God. And open theism is an attempt to reframe God, Yahweh, the God of the Bible, as the God of the Bible, and not as a God of platonic mysticism. After this introductory period, James White finally starts talking about the Bible, which is pretty surprising considering in his uh, internet monologue on open theism, he doesn't start talking about the Bible till about 40 minutes into his presentation. So he kind of avoids the Bible when dealing with open theism. But what passage does everyone think that he's going to turn to first? Now, Calvinists have two main passages that they'll turn to. you got the Romans 9 text, and then you got the Isaiah, the Deutero-Isaiah text in Isaiah 40 through about 48 or 53, depending on where you want to cut it off. But that passage is what James White turns to. And the funny thing is he's already talked to Sanders a little bit about this passage in the previous debate. And Sanders does respond. He responds in a very short clip in the previous debate. We don't know if James White internalized his response or if he even is able to respond to it. Maybe he just ignores it. But he never does respond to Sanders' understanding of the text. Let's hear him. Well, first and foremost for me, um, it, it takes away from us the primary mechanism that God himself gave to his people for recognizing the true God over against false gods. When you read the trial of the false gods in Isaiah 40 to 48, a repeated emphasis, uh, biblically speaking, in determining who the true God is over against false gods is the true God has knowledge of future events, not just, well, a predictive knowledge, but it is a certain knowledge, and it is knowledge that involves the actions of free creatures. It's not just, well, I'm going to do this. Mm -hmm. It's, this is what I'm going to do, and this is what people are going to do, and my purpose is going to be established, and it's not like I'm just interacting with people, and, and it may go this way, and it may go that way. Let's take a moment to understand James White's mentality. 
his mentality is because the text doesn't specifically say that there's free will and there's interactions involved, then it's not depicting that at all. But what sense does that make? Let's say you have a powerful king, and the king's explaining what he's going to do. He's going to use powerful language to explain it, even if it involves the free will actions of all his men and all his enemies and the people he's going to manipulate. He's going to say, I determine this, I'm going to do it, and it's going to happen. And why would he interject this wishy-washy language that even though it depicts reality and depicts that there's probability, if if he's trying to make a concerted point that he has the power to do something, you're not going to undermine your own statements with this uh, language that's going to allow these little possibilities that might never be realized depending on how much power that king has. That's an absurd objection. And this line of thinking is in response to a question trying to explain why open theism is an orthodox which they're equating with heresy, apparently, the question asker is. But it's absolutely absurd. It's a terrible reading of the text. And the Calvinists, how they read the Bible is they try to read it like some sort of manual, and they throw to the wind everything we know about human communication. They just throw it in the trash. That's a common theme with Calvinists. They Anything with reading comprehension and understanding how language works and idioms works and metaphors works and hyperbole works and emphasis works. They don't care about any of that. They want some sort of mechanical reading, but only, only for the verses that they want to take very specific meanings out of. And they want to discount large swaths of the Bible to affirm their theology. And we'll make some other comments about this Isaiah passage. This trial of the false gods is absolutely not about knowledge. It's not a trivia contest. The followers of Yahweh are not like, our God knows more than your God. That's not the point that's being emphasized here. The point is that God is powerful enough to do things. And to prove this, they point out, these are the predictions that we're making now, and these predictions are going to come true. And previous predictions in the past were said to happen before they happen. This is proof positive that our God is powerful, and your gods are not powerful. They say, do you have similar things in the past that you said would come true and then came true in that order because saying that they were your God's actions after it came true, that's just not evidence for anything. If that is the one of the very issues that God gives us in recognizing who the true God is, once you take that away, um, and I'm, I'm not sure, uh, Dr. Sanders and I did not discuss this in our formal debate on the subject, but uh, I debated another open theist a couple of years ago and one of the issues that came up was Jesus with the disciples in John chapter 13. And before his betrayal, um, he, of course, tells the disciples about, about Judas. Uh, not by name, obviously, but he says, one of you, you know, yes. dips the hand, yeah. so on and so forth, lift up the heel against me, so on and so forth. And in John thirteen nineteen, he actually quotes from Isaiah forty three ten. It's a text about Jehovah God where Jehovah is saying, before it comes to pass, I'm going to tell you, so that when it does come to pass, you may believe that, and then he uses the Hebrew phrase anahu, which comes into the Septuagint as ego imi, the I am saying. So Jesus uses in John 8, 24, 8, 58, 13, 19, and 18, 5 through 6. These are key texts regarding the deity of Christ. Ugh, gag me. These are not Jesus claiming to be ego imi, Yahweh, I am. They're just not it. Not every reference to Ego Amy is a claim to be the I am. Paul uses Ego Amy. Other people in the Bible use it. It's just a common phrase. 
And usually Christ is referring to him being the Messiah, him being the Christ. And that's what the I am is. I am he. I am the Messiah. I am the son of God, the son of man. That type of common Jewish eschatological tradition. It's not a claim to be God. It's not meant to be. And it's kind of contrived on his part for his Trinity debates. So think about what James White is doing here. He's saying Jesus claims to be the I am based on future foreknowledge. And he's referencing back to Isaiah. But James White elsewhere, I just found a video this this other day, talking about James White's answering question, is Jesus omniscient? And Jesus is not omniscient. And so Jesus, even if the verse was about him foreknowing and that's a claim to be God, Jesus is not omniscient. And so omniscience doesn't have to be a characteristic of whatever James White is trying to force omniscience to be a characteristic of. It's just not, it's not a proof text. It's a terrible proof text. And James White is inconsistent in his views about Jesus and how this text should be used. James White then goes to talk about prophecy And let's listen to what he says about prophecy. And let's just think, is this a good evidence for Calvinism? Is this the solid proof that James White thinks it is? Uh, There are prophecies about what specific individuals are going to do that are not just simply conditioned. They are are saying, I'm going to accomplish it, and I'm going to accomplish it this way, even to the point where you have hardening of hearts, destruction Mm -hmm. of nations, all sorts of things. And God says, what I do, I'm going to accomplish If God has to take specific precautions like hardening hearts and manipulating nations to get his prophecies fulfilled, that's pretty strong evidence that the future is not determined and God is innovating and that's how he uses his power to fulfill his prophecy. Because why is God even talking about having to harden someone's heart if God controls all things from all eternity and that's just not the normal state of being? That's emphasized because that's God doing something specific to ensure that his prophecy is fulfilled, something that shouldn't have to happen if Calvinism was true. But James White, his evidence for Calvinism is again, like so much of his other evidence, actually evidence against Calvinism. The Bible is just not written like the future is fatalistic. The Bible is written that God has to intervene in history in order to accomplish his will. Okay, let's talk about prophecy then, John. Is this a real issue for the open theist? Well, uh, the way it's been understood, uh, prophecy in evangelicalism, and then if you look at the way prophecy has been understood throughout the history of Christianity, there's a variety of views. So um, let's just deal with it within evangelicalism. So um, first of all, um, the idea that this is a test of uh, divinity in Isaiah. So in The God Who Risks, my book, The God Who Risks, I uh, bring out Bruce Ware is the one who made this claim first, and um, that Isaiah is saying, look, uh, that is, God is saying, uh, I'm declaring this is going to happen because I have foreseen it, and uh, because I have foreseen it, this proves that I'm God, when I have a different reading of the passage uh, of Isaiah. What Isaiah is saying, God is saying in Isaiah, is I am going to determine this event, and it will happen. And that event is the, ex- the return from the exile. The Jewish people will return from the exile. And I'm going to bring it about, and it's not up to free will. This is the way it's going to happen. Okay, so then it's a question of does God have the power to do that? It's not a question of God foreseeing the future. And this is just an re- absolute red herring for Calvinists, because 
Calvinists don't believe God foresees the future, and hence, ah, so now I know what's going to happen, I can determine the future. No, God determines the future, and that's why God foreknows it. So a great thing that John Sanders does is he's very humble about it, and he says there's multiple ways to understand this. And yeah, that's totally valid, and it's good to point out that there's some uncertainty in just normal reading of texts. But one thing that John Sanders really should have done is addressed the Calvinist reading and explained why that is not probable and possibly even silly. The entire chapters 40 through 48 are all trying to convince Israel that God is powerful and can accomplish what he wants to do, as opposed to false gods, that this is a knowledge contest. How does that appeal to the Israelites at all to worship God? Why would that make them want to serve Yahweh over other gods? This is not a knowledge test. That's ridiculous. John Sanders points out the red herring of this all because the Calvinists, they don't even believe what they claim that Isaiah 40 through 48 is about. They don't think that God sees the future and that's how he knows things and that's what's relevant. They think that God determines everything and that's how God knows the future. There are some Calvinists that think God's outside of time and sees everything at once, but still they think that God determines everything. So this being a knowledge contest, you know, if God's determining everything, then what point is a knowledge contest? And another thing about this text that I like to point out is the Calvinists don't even understand what this text is trying to do. This text is trying to convince Israel to worship Yahweh. And so it assumes free will in the hearers in order to convince them to believe something. This is not fatalistic. This is not deterministic. This is all about free choice and people being convinced through evidence. Next, John Sanders gives a pretty decent overview of some basic reasons for open theism, and we'll kind of play that in full. So the, the, the claim that this is a big deal uh, by a Calvinist, I, I think, is just empty uh, rhetoric. Now, uh, let me uh, also then say, why do open theists believe this about, about God? Well, because we look at passages in the Bible where God responds to prayers of petitions, like Hezekiah or Moses, and it seems that God responds to their prayer, which is a common evangelical you know, practice in prayer. Secondly, God grieves over sin. Well, why would God grieve if it's exactly what God determined would happen? We have words uh, such as perhaps. God says in Jeremiah, perhaps you would do this, or if Israel repents. Uh, why is God using language like that? Why does God put Abraham and Israel to the test and then say, now I know? So God puts them to the test to find out what, what, what they will do. And God changes the divine mind at certain times, over three dozen references to God changing the divine mind. So these are the kinds of texts that we look at. And then when it comes to prophecy, or let me say predictions of, of the future, you have statements in the Bible where God says, this is going to happen, and it happens. And then you have statements in the Bible where God says, this is going to happen, and it does not happen. So Ezekiel 26 and some others, where God uh, tells the, uh, Ezekiel uh, that uh, King Nebuchadnezzar is going to destroy the city of Tyre. And he didn't say, well, actually, only the mainland, not the island in the harbor. He's not going to capture that. But Ezekiel 29 then says, hmm, Nebuchadnezzar didn't capture the city of Tyre. Okay. So you have biblical texts in which biblical predictions that come about, and God says this is going to happen, and it happens. And then you have others where God says this is going to happen, and it doesn't happen. 
So open theism is an attempt to explain all those patterns. Okay. Now, the debate moderator then pushes John Sanders to talk about the example of Judas, and I think that John Sanders handles this fairly well. He points out that there's conflicting explanations in open theism, and so there's there's multiple possibilities. And so what that does, that forces James White to have to try to address every single possibility. Does James White do that? No, he doesn't. Sanders probably missed the opportunity to talk about how prophecy works and how not all prophecies are like direct prophecies. If you go through, for example, Matthew and look at all the references to the Old Testament, all this prophecy being fulfilled, they're not actual prophecies. And you don't get the idea that there's any prophecy if you turn back to those references and read it. Instead, a lot of times there's parallel concepts. A lot of times, like the subjects changed, like Paul will be talking about the Gentiles, where this reference will be talking about the Jews, or the number of actors will be changed. There will be little changes, but what the Hebrew concept was that uh, prophecies are prophecies if they parallel previous concepts, and that's how they got truth value. Prophecy is a really good point for open theism, because if Calvinism, if future foreknowledge was true, you'd expect to see a lot more very specific prophecies instead of vague prophecies. Prophecies that sometimes don't come true, like the example of Tyr. And you'd expect to see a lot less of these parallelisms where all the subjects and, and nature, that has to be changed in order to make it a prophecy. You just don't get that. You don't get the sense that the future is known with absolute specificness. And you don't see prophecies mirroring this image. And you'd expect to see a lot more finer details in prophecies if that were the case. And here's how James White handles the assertion that Judas might not have to betray Jesus. Uh, in other words, Jesus would have given a false prophecy, and then when it went false, then they fixed it? Uh, I'm going to fast forward to John Sanders' response to this, because he totally owns James White. James White has incredibly ridiculous and contradictory theology, double standards for all his beliefs, and, and John Sanders throws it in his face in, in a very nice way, which probably makes it a little bit more deeper. Let's listen. Secondly, he said then, uh, if God proclaims, uh, Dr. White said, if God proclaims that X is going to happen, an event's going to happen, and does not happen, then God uh, utters a false prophecy. And then in that case, then Ezekiel 26 is a false prophecy, according to that way of thinking. But most people in history have said, no, 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 it's a conditional prophecy. And so the question, the debate for me really is, how many conditional predictions are there in the Bible? I think most of them are, pre are conditional predictions. And uh, some other people say, no, 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 none of them are, because they're all, uh, you know, God has determined everything. So if God has determined everything, then you have the problem of Ezekiel 26, and God saying this is going to happen, and it doesn't happen. Well, if God determined that Nebuchadnezzar would never capture Tyre, then he should have said, you know what, I'm not going to make this statement to Ezekiel because it'll look bad. It'll be a false prophecy according to uh, James White's definition. Boom, drop the mic. And so throughout the Bible, you have all sorts of very firm prophecies, prophecies that don't come to pass. And like, for example, one of them is in Jonah, 40 days and Nineveh is going to be overthrown. We have lots of good reasons to understand that was a serious prophecy and there was no repentance in that message, and it just did not happen. And every time that a Calvinist comes across something like that, they'll say, oh, it's conditional. And then any prophecy that did come true, they'll say, oh, that wasn't conditional. 
what's your metric? It's this ex post facto looking back at the prophecy and then seeing if it came to pass or not, and then retroactively declaring whether it's conditional or not. Absolutely absurd. So give us something tangible. How do we know what's conditional and what's not? And the Calvinist is not going to offer anything because they don't have anything. That's not how they do theology. That's not how they want to understand the Bible because that will contradict you know, what they want to impose upon the prophecies in the Bible. I skipped a lot of James White bloviating. He talks again about Isaiah. Then he throws out this Job passage and he says, Oh, Job thought that God was immutable. Yeah, I'm sure Job is talking metaphysics and God is utterly unable to change in any sense of the word. Yeah, I'm sure Job is talking pagan platonistic metaphysics. Brilliant idea, James White. Um, th- th- this Ezekiel passage, James, do you want to address this and, and what it is that that, well, that, that uh, John is claiming didn't happen and therefore, on your view, would turn out to be a false prophecy? On his view, he says, actually, it's just a conditional prophecy and it didn't come about. Well, there, there are a lot of, of, of texts. This, this, this one's the easiest one for, and it's not just open theists who use it. Uh, Muslims use it. Uh, Mormons have used it to uh, allege the, uh, the, the corruption of Scripture. Um, a lot of people who attack inerrancy uh, utilize it, um, and and that's what makes it a little bit odd to be hearing it in this particular context. Is I'm normally dealing with subjects like this with with atheists, not with with Christians, and so that's that's one of the problems that I have here. And this is just James White using the poisoning the well tactic. He's trying to claim that open theists are associated with all these fringe movements like these Mormons or these atheists. You know, maybe the reason why atheists and Mormons and people like that, they turn to these passages is because your understanding of this passage is so out of line. It's the easiest way to criticize you, James White. Your correlation does not equal causation. Maybe you need to reconsider your interpretation of these verses, considering that that's how people criticize your views. Instead of thinking like that, thinking rationally about the situation, instead he uses this to try to dismiss open theism. All open theisms are just like these people. And he does this earlier in the debate as well, where he tries to link open theism to like atheism or Mormonism or Islam. It's just what he does as a debater. And one of the reasons why he's dishonest, and we've documented his dishonesty throughout our webpage, God is Open, just search James White's name. And his dishonesty is well documented. John Sanders, to his credit, doesn't sit by idly and take this type of abuse. And he points it out that James White is poisoning the well. He doesn't use the technical term. But later in the debate, you see this really got to James White. And he tries to reverse it and throw it again at John Sanders. But the thing is, he did it in a hypocritical way. He did it on the nature of God and evil, whereas he had just previously fallen to the same fallacy again a second time he tries to criticize open theists as giving zero hope to people who are suffering and john sanders says you know i don't find any hope with uh you know everything being predetermined that's not hope and then james white says you're making the same type of bad uh, associations that you accused me of doing earlier you had just accused open theism of not giving hope to people who are dying and in need and that's what was being responded to james white james white just listen and try to comprehend an argument for once in your life let's listen to james white now talk about prophecy and i'm, I'm a little bit concerned when you have such clear teaching 
uh, of Scripture uh, being based upon, well, this uh, particular prophecy back here allegedly didn't happen the way that we think it should have been, so this would be a false prophecy. And that means that Jesus is telling the disciples, when this happens, you will know that I am, could also not happen, and the entirety of the work of redemption would have to be done in a different way. So here's James White's argument. He says, prophecy can be fulfilled in unexpected ways. Okay, so now not only is prophecy somewhat vague, but it could be fulfilled in almost unlimited leeway, in almost unlimited fashion. Isn't that evidence for open theism, that prophecy is flexible, can be innovated, and can be fulfilled in multiple different ways? The Calvinists are literally setting up a prophecy system in which prophecy can never be falsified. There's no such thing as a false prophecy because there's unlimited ways to fulfill it. So it doesn't matter what the Bible says about any prophecy. That prophecy must come true. So then how how is prophecy an argument for Calvinism if there's unlimited leeway in fulfilling a prophecy? Let's pretend that the prophecy of Tyre can be fulfilled 250 years later to people that it wasn't even given to, to people who didn't even exist at the time of the wickedness which spawned the prophecy against here. Let's pretend that it can be fulfilled in that manner. What good is prophecy? What does prophecy tell us? What use is prophecy if prophecy it can be falsifiable? And what does it tell its listener if the listener can't even trust the face value understanding of that prophecy? It's useless. It's, prophecy just becomes just words that people sprout. If prophecy has unlimited ways to be fulfilled, then it's a terrible, terrible, terrible argument for future omniscience of future events. Yeah. So the way uh, we, we view this is largely through the lens of passages in Jeremiah, where God says, if I say this is going to happen to a country, I'm going to raise it up. But it does badly and treats people horribly and does injustice, then I won't do that. And if I say to a country, I'm going to tear you down and destroy you, but the nation repents and does uh, properly to widows and orphans, well, then I reserve the right to change my mind about that. And we see that in passages like uh, Samuel and uh, Saul, where God says originally, uh, Saul is going to be, his family will be kings forever in Israel, but Saul turns out to act unjustly and not obey God. And so God changes the divine mind and removes Saul's family and institutes David's family. And so God has the right to uh, deal with people in these ways and to change the divine mind and to utter conditional statements, even if they're not stated with the word if. So many of the biblical predictions can be conditional, even like Ezekiel 26 is not stated with an if. But almost all biblical commentators treat it as a conditional. So I'm saying that uh, these things are conditional. Jesus is working with the disciples. He's trying to get uh, Peter, for instance, to take a different path. Uh, I think the, um, you know, why do you announce, hey, you're in big trouble, and this is what's going to happen in the, in the Old Testament? is to get Israel to change her ways. And so I see the same kinds of moves by God going on in the New Testament. All right, that was uh, pretty good by John Sanders, talking about the potter and the clay, the, the literal interpretation of the potter and the clay parable. And James White wrote a book about the potter and the clay in which he doesn't ever address God's own interpretation of the parable of the potter and clay. So it's a little bit ironic. Do you think James White addresses it here either? No, he changes the subject. 
I think there's some real uh, issues uh, that I didn't get to address earlier in some of the texts that were brought forward. One of them was Abraham and the testing of Abraham. And now I know. He changes the subject. Yeah, go figure. So his new subject that he brings up now, that's new at the end of a debate, he says, you know, if God learned about Abraham, then what does it mean that God knows us fully? Well, let's look at what the psalmist says. King David in Psalms 139, he says, test me and know me. God knows us intimately because he tests us and figures out what we're going to do, which actually responds to his next point. He says, if God tests Abraham and Abraham has free will, can Abraham just rebel the next day? Yeah, if my wife tests me, if she like sends a hot girl over to me to like hit me up for my number and to talk to me and you know make advances on me, if I pass that test, she's pretty darn sure what I'm going to do tomorrow. Because guess what? Prior events are pretty good predictors of future events. There's entire betting markets about the future where people use present knowledge to accurately predict the future. And James White, in his arguments, he just totally relies on emotion. So if someone says, oh yeah, Abraham could possibly rebel the next day, he's going to be like, ooh, ah, that doesn't sound nice to me. I don't like that. But it's not a biblical argument. It's not probable that Abraham's going to rebel the next day. And the biblical record records that he didn't. But guess what? Abraham's children rebelled, even though God said that these people would be a people that served him. This discussion, this debate between John Sanders and James White, it's a pretty good one. I suggest everyone listen to the full thing. The last about half an hour is just something else, so it's not as long as it actually looks. And John Sanders does an excellent job. He does a better job than he did in his prior debate with James White. James White avoids Sanders' arguments. He doesn't respond to the arguments, and he really doesn't prove his case that open theism is heretical. And all the criticisms I have of John Sanders, you know, this is a debate. People are thinking on the fly and responding on the fly. It's not like a personal criticism. And there's always things we could take away from debates. You know, so I don't fault John Sanders for missing any arguments he could make. Because, you know, debates are fluid. They happen. And he did a really good job. And I congratulate him for it. It's a good addition to open theist debates. If you have any questions or comments on this debate, feel free to put that on the God is Open website or start a Facebook thread on our companion Facebook group, God is Open. Thank you for listening.